Hello and welcome to Malicious Life by Cyberism. I'm Ran Levy. Graham Cluley is a British security journalist, blogger and podcaster who writes about the information security world since the early 1990s. Cluley is also a frequent guest on our podcast and in this episode we'll hear an interview I did with Cluley about the early days of information security. Why did computer experts back then believe that computer viruses were just a myth? Why did virus authors have superhero names such as the Dark Avenger? Lots of interesting and fun stories. So enjoy the interview. Hi, Graham. Thank you for joining this uh, interview. So let's start with you introducing yourself and tell me how you started in uh, information security. Huh. Yeah, so my name is Graham Cluley, and um, I've been working in the field of computer security since around about 1991, I think, or 1992, um, when I began my life as a programmer Uh, at a company called SNS International, who produced a piece of software called Dr. Solomon's Antivirus Toolkit, which was one of uh, Europe's leading antivirus products at the time. Um, and Alan Solomon was a real guy, and he needed a Windows programmer. And I came into the industry via a rather strange route, which is that when I was at college, I had been writing computer games. And at the end of my computer games, it would put up a very sad message about how I was a poor, impoverished computer programmer. And if only people would send me a check for five or ten pounds, I would be able to fulfill my dream of visiting my girlfriend who was studying in Paris and go down to the supermarket and buy a, a trolley load of cheesy biscuits. And uh, people liked my games, and they did actually send me some money, which was fantastic at the time, you know, because I was just a young student. And um, one day I got back home, and there was a big box on my desk. Uh, sorry, box on uh, at the front door. And I opened it up, and inside, amongst all the polystyrene, was a copy of Dr. Solomon's Antivirus Toolkit, which was very nice. A check for £20, much more than I'd asked for. And, most importantly a packet of cheesy biscuits, so I hadn't actually had to go down the supermarket. <laughs> and there was a letter from Alan Solomon saying, my kids love your games. If you want a job, get in touch. And uh, <laughs> I was desperate for a programming job at the time. And so I thought, okay, I'll do that. And it turned out I was one of the very first programmers at his company. And I wrote the Windows version of his antivirus software. But uh, So it all, all happened by accident. I, I did have an interest in computer viruses before then, like many people. It, it was the early days of the internet at our college, and we didn't have the web. The web didn't really exist back then. But we had Usenet, and we had uh, mailing lists. And one of the many mailing lists I was on was Virus L, uh, which was the uh, digest of the comp.virus mailing list. And so... I was interested in reading about malware, or as we then called it, it was mostly viruses and trojans back then. Why were you so interested in uh, viruses? To be honest, I, I was doing a computer studies course, uh, and it wasn't something which particularly fascinated me, computer viruses, back then. But there was... There wasn't very much on the internet to do. And so I joined all kinds of mailing lists. I was on a mailing list, for instance, about cryogenic suspension. Um, there was a guy, <laughs> there was a guy who was saying, look, if any of you are about to die, send a message to the mailing list. I'll come round with my fridge freezer and uh, I'll freeze your bodies. <laughs> so I was on that mailing list and I was on mailing lists for all kinds of things. Um, and one of them was this virus thing. And I thought, well, I'm into computers. Um, I might as well read about this and what's going on. It's, it, you know, we, we didn't have the web. You know, we didn't have smartphones. What could we, what could we do to entertain ourselves during lectures other than read about cryogenic suspension or these, <laughs> these mysterious things called viruses? So that, that's, that's what I was doing. Uh, so I guess we should be grateful that the cryogenic industry has not evolved as well as information security. Yes, I, I think so. Yes, their loss is hopefully information security's gain, but uh, there might be others who disagree with that. So talking about uh, mysterious viruses, what did you know about viruses back then? What did you think about them? Um, I think I believed that they existed, and I know that seems a crazy thing to say, but at the time there was a lot of myth about computer viruses. Some people, I think actually it was, you know, way back then, in the late 80s, 
and early 90s, I think it was Peter Norton himself who said that viruses were an urban myth like the alligators in the New York sewers. And about 18 months later, Symantec released the first version of Norton Antivirus. Um, so there were a lot of people who simply didn't believe they existed. They thought this is all just hype. People are just buying snake oil to protect themselves against something which people weren't seeing. Because you have to remember, most computers at the time weren't even networked, let alone on the internet. And so the only way you could catch a virus was from someone handing you a floppy disk and you put in the floppy disk into your computer and maybe you booting off that floppy disk and you see that non-system disk or disk error message and the virus jumps mm -hmm. onto your hard drive. But that, that, that was the way in which, in which viruses spread at the time. So mm -hmm. it would take months and months, if at all, for a virus to spread around the world via basically sneaker net. So malware was much less commonly encountered and yet you kept on hearing stories about people who supposedly had had something bad happen on their computer. So some people didn't believe it. I did believe it existed. I mean, I think the, the mailing list I was on helped convince me that these were genuine problems, albeit nothing like the scale which we're on now. When was the first time you actually uh, encountered a virus in real life or even infected by a virus? Well, I've been remarkably lucky uh, in my own life the only times in which I've actually come across actual virus-infected computers has been on other people's computers. Like my, my own computer, unless I've deliberately infected it, I've never had an infection. I have had situations where I remember once we were having a conference and our company was organising it and there were virus experts from all around the world and we'd say to them, oh, can you give us your slides and things like this? And they'd give us a, a USB stick or a floppy disk and... Uh, We'd put it into our computers and the, the antivirus would go, zoop, zoop, zoop. And we'd say, um, you, excuse me, Mr. World Famous Virus Expert. I'm not going to name any names here. You appear to have given me a virus. <laughs> Back in those days, people were a lot less careful in some cases. Um, so I've not had that happen myself. Um, but even way back then in, in those early days, I, I realised the importance of computer security. And one of the things that, as I said, I was writing computer games. One of the things my computer games would do would be an integrity check on it themselves. They would do a checksum on themselves to see if they'd been altered and refuse to run. Because I just thought, well, that's a sensible thing to do because you don't want someone meddling with your files. Now, that might, that probably wouldn't have successfully prevented infection from what we call a, a stealth virus. Um, but uh, for many common viruses, that that would have been enough to identify that something fishy was going on and, and, and prevent it from happening. So, um, yeah, so I, I've never really got infected myself unless I've wanted to. Um, but of course, like everyone who works in this field, we have friends and family and colleagues and you know, relatives who... Uh, and you become the tech guy of yeah, the family. Yeah, you do, don't you? And, and um, you know, I, I, I think that's the price we have to pay for being in this industry is we can share some of our knowledge with others. And I, I think it's an awful shame when compute... I mean, computer crime in all its forms, and way back then it was just purely graffiti, really... It's such a shame when that puts people off using computers because computers are incredibly enabling devices which help people keep in contact with each other. And um, I've always thought it's just such, such, such a scoundrel thing to do, to write mm. computer malware. I, I've never been tempted to write a virus or anything like that. That's the other conspiracy you hear. Not only in the early days, you know, do viruses exist, but then they go, oh, but I bet you write them, don't you? It's like, no, we don't. You know? <laughs> we wouldn't do that. We're the did, nice guys. Did anyone ever accuse you really of creating viruses and then uh, <laughs> fixing the problem? Oh yeah, I mean that that you just hear that all the time. You know, you come up with all kinds of funny answers to that thing because that's the thing you used to hear the most often. And and so you say things like, "Yes, yes, of course I write the viruses." And I was on the grassy knoll that fateful day in November 1963 when President Kennedy <laughs> went past. You know, it's let's <laughs> let's get all the conspiracy theories out. Or you say, "Oh yeah, you know, why why would we write viruses?" when there are plenty of kids writing them for us for free. You know, why would, why would I get paid by my company to write malware when there are, you know... I mean, it, it's interesting that the situation has evolved so much. Way back when I started in the computer security industry, there were around about 200 new computer viruses every month. And most of our customers would receive their uh, security updates, their antivirus updates, on a floppy disk sent them through the post, 
<laughs> it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, and it, it, and and the most frequent that you could get those updates was monthly. Most of our customers got them every three months, and that was good enough. And over time, you began to offer them on bulletin boards for people to download and things like that. But we even had a system where if there was a, a, a big outbreak, you could read out the antivirus definition because it was just in hexadecimal. You could read it out <laughs> down the phone or fax it to someone and get them to type it in. Um, but th th those days are gone, of course. It's no, it's no longer 200 viruses a month. Um, now there's, what, 300,000, 400,000 a day? You know, it's... Maybe even uh, an hour. May, yeah, it's, <laughs> probably the numbers are completely. Actually, I remember that huge. many of the magazines back then. I was uh, these day, these early days. I was uh, a Spectrum guy. The oh yeah, ZX Spectrum the yeah. machine. And we used to get uh, floppy disks and later CDs via magazines. They they had CDs attached. <laughs> so, yes, and floppy disk that. And sometimes they would carry virus, viruses. Absolutely, well. and what, uh, that was an incredible. That that happened. All too often um, was that these magazine cover discs would contain a virus. And, of course, that would be an incredible way to kickstart a brand new infection and spread it around. And there were major viruses which were spread that way. I, I remember, for instance, the um, Chernobyl virus, also known as CIH. That was spread on a floppy disk. The Marburg virus, one of the very first Windows 95 viruses, was spread on a floppy disk uh, attached, you know, sellotaped or a CD-ROM attached to the front of a magazine. Um, and mm -hmm. way back in the early 1990s, the antivirus company I worked for, one of the services we gave magazines was, we will scan your floppy disk before you put it on the cover of your magazine to make sure that it's squeaky clean. And eventually, we, we got out of that business because we just thought, you know what, this is too risky. Um, there's so many programs and they're crammed in there and they're compressed in multiple ways and... So many accidents can happen along the way that maybe we don't want to be the company which is responsible. Says, yeah, because we would get the blame. It's like, you know yeah. what? This, you're getting all this software from unknown <laughs> sources. And even if we can detect known malware on it, there's always the potential someone could have embedded some sort of Trojan horse deep in the code, which we simply wouldn't pick up. Yeah. <laughs> and you said that th these early viruses were kind of like graffiti. In what sense? Well, in the early days, there wasn't much point to writing a virus. Usually, they were being written to show off to their friends, to their peer group. And so, in fact, I, I miss those days because the viruses back then were so much more visual and graphical. And so they would put funny messages up on the screen or they'd have some ASCII art or letters would drop down the screen or you'd have a green caterpillar crawling across the screen, eating up your letters and pooing them out the other end brown. You know, it, you knew when you had a virus. It was great. That one I've never heard about. You never heard a green caterpillar. Oh, adds 1,575 bytes to the end of your executable. That's the kind of... Irritate, useless, useless trivia, which you learn as a computer security expert about the early viruses. You can ask me about modern viruses, and I won't remember anything about them. But the ones from way back then, you remember even how many bytes long they were, because it was just, you know, that's all you had. Um, but, yeah, so viruses way back then would do something visual, because they needed to announce their presence, or they'd play a tune through your speaker, and, you know, even, even the typical guy in the accounts department would know that something bad had happened. And the reason why they were comfortable telling people that they existed was because they weren't stealing money. They were just purely graffiti. They just wanted to make the headline. So some 15-year-old boy, and it was typically men who were writing these things at the time, um, who didn't have enough vitamin D in their diet, maybe didn't have a girlfriend, and, you know, they, they were just <laughs> too obsessed with computers and writing these things and the underground community. But they weren't doing it for money. And that was one of the big changes which happened, of course, was because when they started being financially motivated, you didn't want to announce your presence. You didn't want to tell people mm. that you'd compromise their computer and maybe were stealing information from them. When did you realize that the landscape of uh, information security is changing towards the more sinister, economical, motivated uh, malware? I think it really began in the late 1990s when, although there was still a lot of juvenile activity when it came to malware, as, and that, that, those were still things you didn't want, right? You didn't want to pass them on to your customers. They were still a serious problem and you, you wanted to stop that stuff. But 
it became oh so much more serious when the password stealers began to arrive. And the password stealers, I th I would argue, first really began to see a big movement of them towards the end of the 1990s, particularly with AOL password stealers, software specifically written to grab the passwords of AOL users um, because everyone wanted cheaper internet. And so you, you would grab the details of, of people that way. And that began to evolve over time into more general password stealing. So it might be your internet dial-up passwords, but of course it may also be the passwords you're using to log into websites, to log into your online bank. Um, and those attacks over time became more and more stealthy. So they wouldn't announce their presence. There would be no benefit to them going, "Yoo-hoo, I've infected you. There, there was no point to that. And by the way, it's interesting to note that today's ransomware has kind of reversed that. Um, it that, has. Uh, it has. Now they ha you have to notify the user that you exist and you want money. Yeah, and we're seeing some creativity and some artistry now in ransomware. You know, it, that if you're writing a piece of ransomware, one of your questions must be, you know, how are we going to depict a great big skull dripping in gore and blood on the screen? How are we going to grab people's attention here? So I think you're right. It is a kind of reversal because they have to tell people, hey, you are infected. You are going to have to pay us money to get your data back. And obviously, ransomware is one of the most pernicious things. The other area where we saw that kind of return to creativity is through website defacement, of course, and some hacktivist activity, where the hacktivists aren't necessarily doing it for money, but they want to embarrass a company, or they want to expose poor security, or they want to uh, reveal the secrets of a company. Um, hmm. or, or maybe they've just got revenge in mind against a big corporation. I mean, we saw the Sony hack, for instance. Many people said it was North Korea who were behind the Sony Pictures hack. I don't know necessarily that that was true or not. Um, I, I suspect it may not have been true. But one thing it did was it displayed very graphical images on the screens of those Sony computers. And, you mm -hmm. know, it was designed to get attention. And by, and, by word, it did. And, and speaking of hacktivism, I mean, the mainstream media tends to see groups such as Anonymous as a kind of representative of uh, computer hackers uh, in a stereotypical way, I guess. Yeah. The people who used to write malware in the early days, were they like anonymous in the sense that they were anarchists just having fun or was there anything else other behind them? I think many of them in the early days were really doing it for fun because they were into computers and they wanted to hang out, at least electronically, with other guys who shared the same interest. And they would create alter egos for themselves, so they would have these fanciful names like Nowhere Man and Slarty Bartfast, Apache Warrior, Ice Nine, Colostomy Bag Boy. You know, they would have these. <laughs> and it was a bit like, you know, meeting, you know, thinking of members of the World Wrestling Federation. You know, they have this all this bravado, and, you know, they have this great big name and everything. But, you know, in reality, that wasn't what they were at all but they had this alter ego online where they would you know describe themselves as dark phantom or something like that and it's like come on there was you the know. dark the so, dark avenger dark avenger yes dark avenger from sofia in bulgaria yeah. he was a virus writer who got an awful lot of attention through his uh, malware which he was written which was quite sophisticated malware um, he also wrote this thing called the Dark Avenger Mutation Engine which you could plug into your own piece of malware in order to make it polymorphic to try and avoid detection by antivirus software he, and and a lot of the media then began to think well all virus writers come from Bulgaria you know that that's that's the center of it's like no not really you know there's viruses being written all over the world you don't have to be in Bulgaria to do this. And of course, that continues to this day. There are malware authors and hackers probably in every country. Did you have any personal encounters with uh, virus authors in your line of work? Um, I've sometimes met them at computer shows. So you, you'll be, you know, man in the booth at some ghastly computer show and uh, members of the public come up to you and ask you questions. And occasionally someone will come up and say, hi, I'm Garbage Heap. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? Do I call you garbage or Mr. Heap? You know, and, and and he might talk about whatever you've said about his virus, and you tell him something about his virus, and uh, you have that those kind of conversations. Doesn't tend to happen as much these days, obviously, because um, 
I think uh, the, the typical malware author realizes just how much uh, serious trouble they can get into. Um, but back then, uh, certainly did happen. Normally, though, I mean, you wouldn't meet these guys in person. Um, there was one female virus writer called Gigabyte. Uh, she was a Belgian virus writer, and she took particular offense to me. Um, it was all a misunderstanding. Um, she... <laughs> <laughs> but it played out in the media. I think the media liked that she was taking pops at me and I was sort of taking pops back. And uh, so occasionally she would mention me in my, her viruses. And, and the reason why she mentioned me was she thought I'd said that girls weren't clever enough to write viruses. And that is not true. I've never believed girls aren't clever enough to do anything. In my experience, they do just about everything better than us dumb men. Um, but what I was saying was that girls are too smart to write viruses. They've got better things to do with their time. Remember, this, these are the days before you made money out of malware. And so my, my whole point was <laughs> women have got better things to do with their time than this childish, pointless activity which men do, which is writing viruses. And anyway, she got upset and she wrote some viruses which mentioned me by name. And the most notorious one is one called Coconut, um, which displayed a picture of my head on the screen. And you had to throw a coconut at my face. And I think the more times you hit my face with a coconut, the less files she would infect on your computer. So there was a real incentive to hit me in the face with a coconut. And, you know, that's quite witty. <laughs> you kind of think, oh, it's... <laughs> Were you cool. flattered? Well, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I'd rather she hadn't written the virus at all. But then if you've got the choice of using my face or Miko or John McAfee, you know, I think, oh, OK, that's nice of her. But, <laughs> but I... I, because I'm a little bit childish and silly, when the media rang me up about this and said, why do you think she's uh, doing this? I couldn't resist saying, I think she's probably got a little bit of a crush on me. <laughs> and, so, and of course, that just wound, it, it just wound her up even more. Um, she, has, she, she was eventually uh, identified um, and um, the police had a word with her. Um, and now she works, I believe, as an IT technician. You can find her on Twitter. Um, she was never imprisoned or anything like that for her viruses, and she seems to have gone to the good side. Um, I, I think, actually, I might follow her on Twitter. I'm not sure. But, um, but yeah, she is out there. I'm afraid romance never blossomed. But the media <laughs> loved it because she was a very... I mean, she was, at the time, a very rare example of a young woman... Blonde, with a ponytail, who wrote viruses. And so the media loved it because they kind of pictured her as a Lara Croft kind of figure. And sometimes she did appear on TV and things. Um, yes, I remember she used to practice a kickboxing, I think. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> I was once asked by a security company, um, could I go and give a talk at their, their conference or something? And I said, yeah, sure. Yeah. And they said, oh, we're trying to get Gigabyte along as well. And they said, um, if we manage to get her to come along... Would you mind doing karaoke with her on stage? Which is one of the most Why bizarre, karaoke? most bizarre. I mean, I love karaoke, but one of the most bizarre requests I've ever received. Anyway, it didn't happen, I'm afraid. So there's no secret album out there which people can purchase of me. And, and you didn't uh, contact her or make any communications later on, I guess. Um, we, we've chatted via Twitter occasionally in recent years, but, you know, very sort of briefly, but uh, that, that, that's been it. So I'm afraid and romance she, hasn't blossomed. She, she apologized, she apologized, I guess, or whatever. Um, not, or that, not so. <laughs> not that I remember. But then she probably feels like many virus writers from that time do. She probably feels, you know, what she did was quite unimportant. I mean, certainly in, to, in the context of today's malware, it was kind of trivial. You certainly didn't want it on your network. And it could disrupt your company's business. And, you know, you, you, you know, no malware is good, in my view. That, you know, the clue is in the name, right? It's malware. Um, but there are different shades of evilness. And probably her malware was a lot less evil than certainly some of the stuff we see these days, which is completely, you know, abhorrent. What is the personal uh, interest in, in the area of information security? What of the various threats and fields is the most uh, you find most uh, interesting? I guess I find interesting um, how serious things have become and, and the growth of state-sponsored malware. Mm -hmm. We never imagined. You know, the antivirus industry has been going around about 30 years and we never, ever imagined 
that governments would be writing this kind of stuff. And not just occasionally. They're writing it all the time. The amount of spying which is going on over the internet. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it. It's so much easier to spy on someone via a computer where they have a webcam in front of them, where they have a microphone turned on permanently, where they have all of their files on that device that you want to steal. So much easier to grab those, control of those devices, than it is to parachute James Bond in behind enemy lines and tell him to steal some microfilm. And you have this wonderful benefit of deniability as well, because it's so hard to attribute an attack to a particular country and say with complete confidence, it was the Russians, it was the Chinese, it was the British, it was the French, it was the Israelis who did this. It's so hard to prove that, that it makes it fantastic for surveillance and espionage. So that's very interesting to me. The other sort of oncoming storm, if you want to call it that, the sort of thing which is rapidly approaching us and which i think is a nightmare is the internet of things where every device now is getting a computer chucked in it with very little thought as to security and default passwords and they're made on the cheap and there's no updating infrastructure and these devices as we know from recent events are Mm -hmm. already being compromised and hijacked and used for denial of service attacks and all manner of other attacks as well so uh, that that's kind of scary that we're we're making big mistakes. I think the computer industry has largely learnt has learnt a lot of lessons from fighting this war for the last 25-30 years. And so operating systems have been hardened and you know we, we all recognize what needs to be done I think to protect we don't always do it perfectly but you know protecting systems and servers it's understood. But these new devices are coming along from manufacturers who have no history and no past knowledge of how to do this properly and you know, it's it's going to be a, a big fight. Uh, those recent uh, attacks that you mentioned in uh, talking about IoT were, of, are of course, DDoS attacks. When did DDoS attacks start to become a real nuisance in, uh, in the Internet? Well, I think, um, if, if I recall correctly, uh, the DDoS attacks really began to become influential around about the time of the rise of the botnet. So when the hackers realized that they shouldn't just compromise computers to steal passwords, but they could actually compromise them to hijack resources, to send spam, um, and to have all of those controlled at once. And then you think, well, we don't just have to send spam from these computers, which is one way of monetizing them. We can also extort money by launching DDoS attacks as well. So the botnet, the rise of the botnet, the idea of so many... And I think this was really if I recall correctly, the early 2000s when this really began to become a problem. Uh, new bot software coming out, compromising computers, being under the control of one bot master. And, you know, we there is so much being done and so many attacks which are constantly happening against websites now. There's a thriving industry of companies who are trying to mitigate DDoS attacks as well. And there are companies who are prepared to pay a large amount of money to stop a DDoS attack, I'm afraid. So I can kind of understand that in a way because they want to do business. If if a gambling site is targeted with a DDoS attack just before a big sporting event and they think, if we aren't running on this particular day, we are going to make, we're going to lose a lot of money, they're making a pragmatic business decision to pay the extortionist. I don't like it, but I can kind of understand it. Similarly, I don't like it when people pay ransomware demands But I can understand if you're a business and you're going to go out of business if you don't pay that $5,000 or whatever it is that you're going to pay. Uh, And that, of course, is what's causing so many more attacks to happen all the time. The latest DDoS attacks were huge in terms Mm. of bandwidth. Do you think that DDoS attacks can become a major threat that really disrupts the activity of, let's say, large organizations We're talking about Amazon, Google-sized organizations, or will the industry know how to deal with these uh, growing and growing attacks? It's always difficult to make predictions um, as to what's, happen- uh, what's going to happen, but I also think that we shouldn't be complacent and think, oh, that could never happen. I, I think the history of computer security has shown us that There have been many occasions when we've been surprised as to what's been possible and, and what's been achieved. And the recent DDoS attacks 
they didn't bring down a site as big as do Google, but they did, of course, disrupt large parts of internet infrastructure and many major sites. Um, were, were, they could have brought uh, were, Akamai down, which right. was a pretty right, large which, company. Exactly. So if you attack companies like that, if you manage to bring down companies like that, that has a knock-on effect on so many other services as well. Um, so I don't think we should be complacent about this. And that, that really sort of leads again back into my fear about the Internet of Things. So many more devices plugging into the Internet which are poorly secured. We are only just beginning to get to grips with computers connected to the Internet. We're only just beginning to get rid of all those Windows XP computers, which are poorly patched. And, you know, we, there's still some really old pieces of malware doing the rounds, from which we first mm -hmm. saw years ago. But they're still spreading because there are still devices out there which aren't properly patched to prevent them from spreading. So it's a worry. That's an interesting uh, notion that today's uh, cybersphere is still full of old malware making the rounds. Yeah, and, and, and there are servers which will probably never be patched. There are, there's pieces of malware which will never completely die. Um, which will just carry on just pinging around a little bit, you know, between some computers which people have forgotten about, put in the cupboard, they got plugged in under the desk, never gets patched, and it's infected and it's looking for other devices to infect constantly. So, yeah, there, there, there is old malware which continues to cause not headline-making problems, but is still out there as a, like a background radiation. That's an interesting comparison to background radiation. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Were your site or blog or your company's site ever attacked in that way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, my site's been attacked a number of times uh, with DDoS attacks. Um, I don't quite know why. In, well, I've got a feeling as to I know why. There was a, a series of attacks which were happening last year against some of the um, anonymous email companies, companies like um, ProtonMail. Um, and others, and I think Proton Mail ended up paying uh, a ransom demand, uh, yeah. if I recall correctly, uh, after they were hit by a DDoS attack. And, and I wrote something saying they shouldn't have paid, and you know they've just encouraged it, and the attackers are going to attack more and more. And indeed, they did attack Proton Mail again. And I suspect that upset the particular group who were uh, launching the DDoS attacks that I was saying, don't pay, ignore, you know, put your defenses in place. That has to be a better answer. And sure enough, my attack, my site has been attacked as a result. I now, I'm fortunate enough, I, I, my site is protected by a DDoS mitigation service. I wouldn't be able to afford it myself because I'm just a one man, you know, <laughs> one man and his dog in his back bedroom blogging. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, uh, they, they were kind enough to say, look, we think your site should be online, so we're going to offer you some extra protection. And so... Uh, they're sitting in there in place and they, they take a lot of the flack for me. So I know there are other security bloggers out there. Of course, famously, Brian Krebs, who's a, a, an awesome security blogger. His site has been attacked many, many times um, because he's unmasking the identities of uh, cyber criminals. And they don't like that very much, do they? Obviously not. But that is interesting that in your case, you had you had an organization that helped you, volunteered to help you. But that says actually that uh, if you're not as famous maybe as Graham Cluley, uh, <laughs> a car, a really, I mean, a DDoS is a grave threat since it, they, it would really put your, uh, uh, crush your site. I mean, it is a, a real threat to the ordinary man. Yeah, it, it, it depends on what, yeah. It, it, it's true. I mean, if, if you, you are, are a small business, if you are you a small pay. business, or if you're an individual, then if someone targets you with a DDoS attack, that and they're determined to keep you offline, that's very difficult to handle. And so you will have to speak to your service providers to see what kind of assistance they can give you to try and uh, prevent that from becoming a problem. One solution might be: um, it depends what you're doing. If you're just running a blog, for instance, you may decide. Mm -hmm you know what, I'm going to move my blog to wordpress.com and I'll be part of that empire which is very well protected in terms of DDoS attacks uh, or things like Google's blogger service, for instance. And then it's like Google is protecting you. Um, but some people like me like to run their own site um, and being in control of it. And so we, we, we have to handle our own protection that way. Um, but uh, yeah, it'd be very difficult if you're a small business, if someone wanted to do that. And of course... 
if you want to attack a website with a denial of service attack, it's not hard to do. You don't need to be technical. All you need to do is pay. You just need to find the right website and pay so many Bitcoin and tell it where to attack and uh, off it will go because these botnets are available for hire. Speaking of uh, paying for uh, what is known today, I think, as a cyber crime as a service, mm. um, what do we know now about the ecosystem, the crime ecosystem behind the scenes? How, how, do, how, do, how does the crime scene look like behind the scenes? Well, <coughs> well it's incredibly matured because it used to be just sort of lone hackers in their bedroom, which, of course, the media would love to still present these things as. But now we have organized criminal gangs. And yes, you might have some people who are nerdy with their neck beards or whatever into computers, and they're the ones maybe who are doing the coding. But you will have other people and other businesses who are providing services to help support the cyber criminal activity. So they could be, for instance, providing hosting services uh, for websites. They could be helping running the servers and making sure that the servers remain online. There are some companies uh, based around the world in jurisdictions where it would be very hard to get those servers shut down. Um, and so they're still allowed to continue to work. You will have people whose job it is to take the credit card details and create fake credit cards. You've got other people who may be helping to actually uh, act as money mules, moving money out of accounts, for instance, and mm. or going to cash machines and jackpotting those machines in order to take cash away. So you have really all levels. You know, this is big, organized crime. These are like companies now, some of these guys working. The difference being that they don't all go to work in the same office. They may not even know each other because a lot of these groups will be virtual and they may be based in other countries. And even if you wanted them to, they wouldn't be able to tell you quite often the names of the other individuals who they are working with. But they're all working to a common goal, which is to steal your money or to steal your company's secrets. And uh, one of the things that uh, really influenced the rise of cybercrime in that sense is uh, Bitcoin which uh, is, is basically untrackable uh, money. Uh, do, do you think that there is any way to uh, curb the threat of Bitcoin in that sense? Or can, we, um, can governments uh, in any way influence that kind of uh, uh, cryptographic currency in a way that can uh, you know, mitigate that threat? I don't think there's much chance of that. I think you can't argue with maths and what we're, de what we're fighting there. I mean, there's obviously all kinds of good things which can be done with Bitcoin as well. Let's not dispute that, right? It's not the actual currency itself which there's any problems with. But, um, and there are big benefits to be able to make anonymous purchases and transactions and so forth uh, in some scenarios. But you can't fight maths. Two and two is always going to equal four. And Bitcoin is just based upon mathematics. And cryptography and provided that those algorithms are, are done correctly and provided the implementations are done properly and haven't been tampered with and the software you're using hasn't been meddled with in some way then I don't really see what can be done about it um, now there have been problems sometimes with some of the Bitcoin exchanges which people use and of course some of those have been hacked or some of those have had funds mysteriously withdrawn from them which perhaps they shouldn't have done um, and so that may be one way to control it to some extent but you're just going to see other ones popping up elsewhere and uh, we were discussing earlier your incident with gigabyte and today's uh, malware authors and crime syndicates are much more mature as you said and dangerous do you think that if it was today if you had uh, that sort of attention from uh, from a cyber criminal that uh, would uh, take attention to you personally were you were you will you be more afraid than you were from the silly encounters of the 90s and early 2000s yes afraid i would afraid for your own security in a sense I, i i i think it would be sensible to be more worried about it i think the line of work i do is is probably not putting me on the front line of targets i think Um, because it's it's not like I mean I mentioned Brian Krebs earlier right who I think a lot of us look up to and has put himself in danger and he's gone to extraordinary lengths to find out details as to who is behind particular cyber crimes and the investigations he's done and 
the criminals have attacked him in response and uh, done all kinds of unpleasant things to try and make his life more difficult. Uh, he's someone who taught himself Russian in order to understand what the bad guys are talking about on cybercrime forums. Um, that, that's not something I'm going to be doing anytime soon, <laughs> knowing my affinity <laughs> with languages. Um, but at the same time, I know that when I left uh, my last company um, in order to work on my own, um, one of the first things I did was I went to the police and I said, this is what I'm doing. Um, and it's, there's the potential uh, for me to be of interest to organised criminals. And they were able to help me, for instance, keep some of my personal information classified uh, in terms of things like company records and so forth. Um, one of the problems I have is my name is quite unusual. So if you really want to find out where I live, you kind of can. Uh, <laughs> Why is it so unusual? I mean, what, surname, Kluli? Yeah, it's very unusual surname, yeah. Um, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's not. It, yeah, I, I've, I've, I think I've only ever met one other outside of my family um, <laughs> in, in all my time. So, um, so it, it's it's pretty unusual. Um, and Graham is hardly the most normal name in England either. It's 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 not that common. Um, so that doesn't help. <laughs> uh, and of well, course, I've got, <laughs> and of course, I've we, got the opposite problem. Yeah, the yeah, yes, Levy. yes, exactly. It's so common. Yeah, yes. Nobody can find me. <laughs> no, fantastic for you. Fantastic. Uh, not so good if you're trying to Google yourself. But, um, but, uh, exactly. but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it's something I think about. And I have a young family and, you know, you, you, you want to be sensible. But I, I think the kind of work I'm doing these days, I wouldn't be of that much interest to the typical organized criminal. They wouldn't want to draw attention to themselves, I suspect. Uh, by targeting someone like me. But, but it's a crazy world out there these days. Yeah, when you went to the police, as you, as you told us, what was their initial reaction? Did they understand what you're talking about? They understood what I was talking about, yeah, because what I did was I took them examples of what had happened to other cybercrime bloggers um, and other commentators. So I was able to provide them with evidence as to what had happened specifically to Brian Krebs where, for instance, they've had drugs delivered to his home, they've had armed SWAT teams sent to his house, um, you know, all kinds of unpleasant things um, have happened to him, which I wouldn't want happening to me and my family. I have had, it, I have had incidents in the past. There, there was a time, I don't know if it was a virus writer who did this, but someone took my photograph and they created a fake account on Facebook and they posted really unpleasant things on Facebook about child abuse and stuff like that. And it as could a could be a serious, uh, serious thing. I mean, yeah, it, it was could serious. Your public image at, at the time. Well, at the time, I was um, actually on holiday in um, where was I? I? I think I was in not Thailand, Vietnam, or somewhere like that. Uh, Cambodia. I was in Cambodia. That's right. And so I wasn't on great internet connection anyway. And I began to get these messages from my company that the CEO had been contacted by people saying, Graham Cluley's been saying left, right, you know, this, this and this on Facebook. Um, you need to do something about him. That My HR department have received emails. So people were so upset about what someone who they believed to be me was posting on Facebook. And people recognized my picture and said, that's Graham Cluley. He works for so-and-so. And they, so they were contacting my company. Um, my wife received messages saying, we know where you live. And we're going to, uh, I received messages saying they were going to shoot my wife in the head because they were so offended as to what this person was posting. And Facebook... Um, this is really serious. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. And they said they were going to burn my house down and all sorts of things. And I was in Cambodia at the time. I was far away from England. And, um, How did you feel about that being so far away? Terrible. And so what I did was I contacted Facebook. And I said, someone has taken my photograph and they're posting all these things and they're saying that my paedophile... Um, and they're riling people into, you know, getting, I mean, my company was fine. They knew it wasn't me, but, you know, people were making unpleasant threats. And Facebook would do nothing. They said, if you've got a problem, you should go to the police if people are making threats about you. And I thought, what kind of community is this that you're not doing something about this? And the only point where I could get Facebook to care was not when I said they're, make, they're claiming that I'm a paedophile or they're, they're making death threats against my wife. The only point at which they cared was when I said, 
they're using a photograph of me which is the copyright of my company. And then they said, oh, copyright infringement. <laughs> we'll do something. That's and I, so I was, silly. I was disgusted. Well, I was pleased that they did it then, but I know other people this has happened to where fake Facebook profiles have been used with their photographs and maybe some to their mobile phone number. I remember one young woman, someone obviously had a vendetta against her and they posted messages claiming she was a prostitute and asking people to phone her up. And she just got so much harassment and so many unpleasant phone calls. And, you know, her, her reputation was being destroyed. And I had the advantage that I was known in the computer industry. I could go to the press and kick up a stink and say, Facebook aren't doing anything. And this is how Facebook have treated me. But regular members of the public have a much harder time. And I, I, I've had a bad taste in my mouth about Facebook ever since. This is a very interesting story. I mean, I used, I, I'm, in my imagination, when I imagined the threat from cyber criminals, I was thinking about what most people would probably think about, the violent threat. Mm. Now you're describing a sort of threat which is non-violent non in that sense, but can get violent in, 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 in unconventional yes. ways. Well, I, do, I don't know that this particular attack was inspired by computer criminals or, you know, it could have been someone else. Who knows? Maybe someone yeah. just didn't like me for some reason. But Krebs, Krebs' experience shows that cyber criminals can and do use these tactics. So yes. it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's potentially possible. I don't, I don't know who was responsible for it. But just as companies' reputation can be very badly damaged by hackers, might be stealing information or exposing something, or even spreading a lie about a company or defacing a website. I've seen, I remember, for instance, years ago, Symantec's website got defaced and they posted a message up on the Symantec homepage claiming that the uh, website was infected by a virus, which obviously would be very, very bad news for Symantec, right? It'd of be course. like, you know, come on, <laughs> guys, can't you get that sorted? Now, it turns out it wasn't infected by a virus. It was just a defacement of a website. It was embarrassing graffiti, but basically harmless. But the damage is done to their reputation. And they probably have some users who went there, saw that, and thought, we're not going to use that product anymore, or we need to go and buy something else because they can't be trusted. Yeah, There I mean, was damage, yeah. Usually damage from these things. Even, even the viruses from way back then, the green caterpillars, there's still damage being done. And there's downtime. And as people are panicking and trying to recover from an incident, computer systems come down, Work grinds to a halt. You can't do your regular business because you rely on the computer network. It's like these hospitals who keep on getting hit by ransomware. You know, hospitals are often very poorly financed uh, in terms of IT, and they haven't had the investment there. And then they're, you know, they may get hit by something, and their systems come down for a while, and they're having to use pen and paper. Well, there's a real impact on the patients and the care and the number of operations which can be handled. And these are organizations which are already enormously stretched and their lives have just been made more difficult because of criminal hackers. So one last question. Looking back at all your rich career and handling all sorts of uh, cyber threats, uh, which, which of the malware or threats or whatever that you remember as most uh, striking, maybe more, most sophisticated, most amusing, most interesting <laughs> in any sense? Oh, wow. I think um, <laughs> the one which, the biggest and most memorable for me is The Love Bug, the I Love You Worm, which was written in the Philippines by a guy called Onel de Guzman and released on May the 4th, 2000. And it was a simple visual basic script virus which would forward itself to the people in your address book. But what was clever about it was the social engineering. And that's what got people all around the world to open it. And the social engineering was the subject line, which was, I love you. And in the body of the email, it said, kindly read the attached love letter coming from me. And if you received that email from that cute girl in the accounts department, you were going to click on it because you'd think, oh, this sounds good. <laughs> or if you received it from your boss, <laughs> who wasn't at all sexy, you were going to open it. You'd think this, will, this, this is either him joking, you'd think, or you'd think, 
this is going to be this is going to be so juicy. He's got a crush on me, or whatever it is. You were going to open it, and the words it's irresistible. I, it's irresistible, and the words "I love you" are understood around the world. It's not. You don't even have to be an English speaker. You know the words "I love you," whatever language you speak. You hear it all the time in the movies. "I love you." That was the genius of it. And it spread around the world like wildfire. And unfortunately, they didn't have sufficient computer crime laws in the Philippines, and the guy got away with it. Um, and he's he's never been punished. What kind of damage did the Lovebug did? Well, it just generated an enormous amount of email, uh, and it spread and it clogged up email systems and just you know it was just huge amounts of email being spread around. It wasn't designed to do any damage in terms of. damage to your computer but what many people forget was it was actually designed to steal a piece of information from you because O'Neill de Guzman had developed this piece of malware with the intention of doing it as a project for his college and he proposed to his college that he, in a thesis he said look what I want to do is I want to write a program which gives people cheaper internet access and originally the college was very keen on this until he explained he was going to do it by writing a virus which stole people's internet usernames and passwords <laughs> which, yes, would get you cheaper internet <laughs> access, but may not be completely ethical. So the college didn't let him write it, but then he wrote it on his own and he released it. So millions and millions of computers around the world are infected by this virus, and it is going into their settings and it's stealing their internet access, their dial-up usernames and passwords, because we were all on dial-up then, we weren't really on broadband. And it was sending them to de Guzman in Manila in the Philippines. Now, this is the year 2000 in the Philippines. Can you imagine what his internet connection was like? <laughs> Pretty poor. poor. <laughs> And he's now got tens of millions of computers around the world all trying to send him their usernames and passwords. So he'd effectively denial of service to himself. <laughs> <laughs> And I miss those days. <laughs> Own goal. That's the definition exactly. of an own goal. Own goal. Although, do you know, they, they actually made a movie. There is a movie of the love, but a, ro a rom-com or something. I've never seen it, unfortunately. I think it's called I Love You. Or P.S. I Love You or something like that. I can't remember. But, uh, <laughs> but they, they did get an American style. And so there is a movie out there all about a couple who fall in love because they receive the I Love You virus and there's a misunderstanding or something like that. So some good came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, that was an amazing talk. <laughs> Thank you very much. I don't remember when I you. laughed so much interviewing somebody on <laughs> such a somber, somber piece of technology. Well, you know, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, one of the things I try and stories. do. Is, it's one of the things I try and do because it, it can be such a dry, nerdy topic. And I think if we're going to get people interested in this and to care and to protect themselves, it has to be made accessible, doesn't it? It has to be something... They get enthusiastic about, and so if you can make people laugh and tell some funny stories, I think it helps along the way. <laughs> All right then. Cheers, Ron. Thank you very much. Have no a worries. great weekend. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. A big thank you to Graham Cluley. You can follow Graham's blog on GrahamCluley.com, listen to his podcast, The Smashing Security Podcast, and follow him on Twitter at, at GCluley for the latest news in cybersecurity. Also, big thanks to all of the listeners who dropped by our booth at DEF CON last month. I wasn't able to be there myself, sadly, but Eliad, our producer, says that 500 Malicious Life t-shirts were gone in just two days. That's amazing, people, really. So thank you very much for all the support and encouragements. Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes, plus full transcripts and more. You can write to me at ran, R-A-N, at ranlevy.com or on Twitter at at ranlevy, R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Follow at Malicious Life for updates on new episodes. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. CK Music. Music. Music.